Hello, and welcome to I Am Dad podcast with your fatherhood authority, Kenneth Braswell. 30 minutes of wisdom, information, resources, and nuggets to help you on your fatherhood journey. Or maybe you're just curious and want to hear some real talk about fatherhood, family, and the minds of men. Well, guess what? We got you too. Sit back, grab your pad and pen, and maybe even bring a little something to sip on. Enjoy 30 straight minutes of fatherhood, family, and fun with the fatherhood authority, Kenneth Braswell. Hello, everyone, and welcome to I Am Dad podcast. I'm your host, Kenneth Braswell. Thank you for joining us another Sunday morning. Uh, we are continuing the awesome conversation with so many people that I have befriended throughout my life and become personally close to that I know have deep um, stories around fatherhood, not only their own fatherhood, but their association with their own fatherhood, their own fathers and the space of fatherhood. And this brother today is a, a, a friend that I met some years ago. We'll talk about it a little bit, but I want to introduce to you Mr. Malik Yoba. Let me run just a couple of things down. Um, because I got this younger audience, right? And so Malik was born in the Bronx, right? He's an actor, youth and fatherhood advocate, and he's a singer as well. And I think I heard you sing one time. I don't know where it was, but I heard you sing somewhere before. Um, amongst other accomplished talents, uh, for the older school crowd, um, he's known for his starring role as NYPD Detective J.C. Williams on the Fox Police drama New York Undercover and as Yul Brenner in the film Cool Running. For the newest school crowd, um, he's known as Gavin in the 2007 Tyler Perry film Why Did I Get Married and his 2010 sequel Why Did I Get Married 2. Um, he was also part of the cast of Lee Daniels' Empire as Vernon Turner, but I know him for many other things. Those are some of his accolades. Um, um, would take the entire 30 minutes to run through them, but this is, I'm talking about a brother with a heart. This is a brother with a heart that just uh, magnetizes me every time I see him and talk to him. Malik, how you doing, sir? I'm good, bro. Good to see you, man. Good to, you know, as my, uh, I have this friend who says, good, better to be seen than viewed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah. you know, when I started putting this podcast together, you know, one of the things that I've just been laboring over a lot is this whole notion of particularly fatherhood as it relates to black men. And, you know, when I when your name came up in my heart and in my mind, I thought about, man, he would be an awesome person to talk to with respect to what black fatherhood looks like in film. But before I get there, I was reading some stuff on you the other day, and then I ran across something this morning that I wanna ask you about because I love talking about people's inspiration. I love talking about what inspires people, particularly moments in their lives where something has happened that inspired them into a space to which they became who they are today. As long as I've known you and as much as I've read about you, I never knew that you were shot. And that's not a thing that people talk about, but I know it's a life-changing uh, situation. Can you talk about how that, I don't want to know that, and not unless you want to share it, but talk about how that changed and inspired your life to be who you are. Um, well, I got shot at 15, January 18th, 1983, wow. leaving high school. A school I didn't want to go to. I went to a place called Park West High School in New York City. And I only went there because my father wouldn't let me go to <laughs> performing arts high school because he didn't believe that you should make money off a of God given talent, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> uh, but I think it was more about his own unrequited dream uh, around being a musician. And, you know, he was very talented, but unfortunately the time he came up, it wasn't so easy for him. Um, so I think it was more about don't pursue that because I don't want you to get a broken heart kind of mm -hmm. thing. Um, 
But um, going to Park West, which at the time people used to call the Wild Wild West, um, a little altercation in the street after school with some kids I didn't know um, resulted in one of them shooting me. Um, but as a result of that, um, and I got shot in the neck, it, it was a graze wound um, that could have left me paralyzed had it been a quarter of an inch over, half inch over, I would have been dead. Mm-hmm. And then that was actually what I was able to say to my father, like, look, kids in the theater ain't shooting nobody. Mm-hmm. So now you need to let me go to the other school that has <laughs> theater program. So I wasn't able to go to performing arts, but I did go to Julia Richmond uh, that had a, a, a program called um, uh, Talent Unlimited and people like Kareem Hardison went there, Most Def went through there, Lisa Lisa, a um, bunch of folk. Um, so th- that that motivated uh, that that experience motivated you know my father at least loosened up a little bit and let me go to that school. Mm-hmm. Um, so that certainly changed the trajectory of my life. But I also I think that the biggest thing that it did was I don't waste time. Mm-hmm. I don't take anything for granted. Mm-hmm. I don't. You know, people will have a conflict in their life and they go, well, you know, don't worry, they'll come around. Nah, I don't believe, I never believe that I have the next moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually now, so I consider that my second birthday, right? Wow. I was born September 17th, 1967. And I got shot January 18th, 1983. But I now have three birthdays and I'll just, I, I had heart surgery a year ago, almost a year ago to the day, mm-hmm. uh, last August 19th. So 17th, 18th, and 19th are my three birthdays, January, in September, January, and August. Mm -hmm. So like getting shot, when you have those near-death experiences, it changes you. Mm -hmm. It it definitely, um, for me, I just get more, I'm just super focused. Mm -hmm. And, you know, don't, I don't have, I don't have idle time. I work I always tell people I work eight days a week, seven, you know, eight days a week, 30 hours a day. Because mm-hmm. that's what it feels schedule. like. It's just, it's, what's that, brother? Is that we on the same schedule? Yeah, there's always more to do. And, you know, you still manage to, you know, like I just left the gym, still manage to, you know, balance it out with, you know, working out or meditation or travel. But when, you, when, you, when you're living on purpose, you know, living in purpose, on purpose, you move different wow. and you know, I, time is one of those things that I don't, I just don't assume I have more of. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about these conversations of inspiration and it's so critical to kind of slow down life sometime to talk about those things that inspire you because those things that inspire you can inspire other people because they don't interpret those situations the same way you did. There's some people that the same thing happened to and they took a whole nother turn. They went a whole nother yeah. space, but they weren't yeah. inspired to do where you are. That's why it was, when I saw that, I don't know why that struck me, but it was like, man, before we get talking about this, I really want to hear him talk about how that moment in his life moved them. Cause we all have those moments where something happens. Last year, I had the pleasure of being honored by Oprah Winfrey um, for in June for the work that I'm doing specifically with black fathers. And after the taping and all that stuff took place, I came home and there was a congratulations, by the way. Thank you so much. Um, Mm -hmm. There was a package and it was came from Oprah. It was her handwriting and everything on. I'm like, wow, like what is she sending me? So I opened the package up and inside the package is a book. And uh, I'll tell you the name in a second, but I open up the open up the cover and she wrote me a long note talking about how much she was inspired by my story to keep the course, keep doing what I'm doing. The work is so needed. Um, Mm -hmm. I thought about you um, as we were talking and had already made up in my mind that as soon as I had a moment, I was going to send you this book because I think it's something that you should add to your narrative. And the book is called What Happened to You. She wrote it with another author. And in the book, it kind of talks about, you know, often we ask people, what's wrong with you? Mm -hmm. But we never ask people what happened to you. There's a deeper story 
in what happened to you as opposed to what is wrong with you. And I think mm-hmm. that's why stories are, of inspiration is so important because people need to find their points of inspiration, even in what one would describe the tragedies in their life. And so mm-hmm. I just want to start there. But you also mentioned in your brief comment, you mentioned your dad, and I want to kind of roll back because many people that I talk to in this space typically have this conversation from a deficit perspective. I had it from them. I didn't have my dad in my life, didn't know him until I was 23 years old. And unfortunately, a year and a half after I met him, he passed away. And I often tell people he died with all the answers to all the questions I had that will never be answered. And so, but when I talk to individuals who had their fathers in their lives, I'm always inspired, whether it is all positive, all negative, or somewhere in between that spectrum, you still had him in your life. And I want to hear from you a little bit about how you believe um, your dad had an influence on you to become who you are. Man, I mean, first of all, Yoba, my last name, Mm-hmm. Uh, he made up. So he was born Milton Myers, uh, M-Y-E-R-S, which is the English spelling. And long story short, when he moved to New York at 15 years old to pursue his dream of becoming a musician, he went to Manus School of Music, came out. When he started pursuing work, he could make a phone call or send a letter as Milton Myers. And the assumption was this Milton Myers person was actually Jewish. He'd show up and then they'd see a black man and he wouldn't get the job. So ultimately, he took the name Nature Boy, which is based on a Nat King Cole song of the same title. Um, He used to perform that song and, you know, um, his his and and his friends used to call him Nature Boy. So Mm -hmm. he ended up taking Nature Boy and spelling it backwards, which is Erotan Yob. And then he added the A for Yoba and gave it a meaning, last of the slaves, a new generation. So that's a small indication of the way this man's mind thought. He did this in the fifties. And so he became Muslim in 1959 and then changed his name to Abdullah. And he had me at 40, there's six of us. Um, And he, he married my mother who was 16 years his junior. At that time, that was not uncommon, but he was 32 when he met her. So you do the math on that one. Okay. <laughs> and, um, but he would always say, um, I waited to have kids so I can give you, so I have something to give you. And my job is to teach you how to think. And I'm currently uh, working on a book proposal um, for a book I'm writing. And, you know, I'd write sample chapters and, invariably what happens is I'm constantly quoting my father. Wow. And I was talking to my sister about this yesterday. And I said, you know, he's about to raise a whole new generation of people because those things that he said to us, like, you're going to hate me as a kid, but love me as an adult. He's, he was right. You know, he always talked about incompetence in the workplace Mm. and he come home frustrated because people around him, could not follow through, were not accountable, you know, sucked at whatever the hell they were doing and people fail upward. And he didn't want anyone carrying his family name to behave that way. So he was very, very strict. Mm-hmm. Um, he used to say things like build your own generator. So when they turn off the power, you still have lights. I have that tattooed on my arm mm-hmm. and I live that, right? I'm constantly working to build, right? You. In the top, you know, you talked about Malik Yoba, the actor, but the reality is I've always been an entrepreneur since I was eight years old with a paper route in Harlem to 16. So, you know, whether it's having a restaurant or a marketing company or a theater company, been doing real estate development for the last 15 years, I've always been about um, creating. That's why I said working eight hours, eight days a week, 30 hours a day. It's never been about one thing. In fact, for him as a kid, because I was always a multi-hyphenate, you know, yes, I was a musician. You know, I got that from him playing guitar, being in the band, but I was on the basketball team and the baseball team and the football team and the drama club. And he would say, boy, you got to focus. 
And I said, well, I am focused. I'm focused on what I'm doing when I'm doing it. And then I'm focused on the next thing. And he didn't necessarily have that capacity, the ability with six kids, at least by the time he had us. He might have had multiple interests. I know he did. I mean, he had a restaurant at one point. He was, he was, you know, he taught us how to swim. And but he was also a diver. Like mm-hmm. that was one of the things. As a kid, I thought it was the coolest shit in the world watching our father go on the three meter or the nine meter board and, and do all kinds of you know somersaults and pikes and you know all that. And so um, his influence was very strong. And my parents separated when I was ten, and we all stayed with him. Mm-hmm. And so six kids with a man in Harlem in the seventies wow. um, was unheard of. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but he was, um, you know, he was he was very very strict. As I said, um, he believed in corporal punishment. Uh, he was excessive. In fact, he was abusive. Mm-hmm. Although it wasn't called abuse, I did, I was. You mentioned you didn't meet your father till you were twenty three. I didn't know to call what I experienced abuse until I was 23. Wow. When I was sharing a story about getting beaten with extension cords, the way I got beaten butt naked till I bled, like mm-hmm. stripped like a slave, um, that was abuse. But his father tied him to a chair and beat him. But the one thing about my father, like, even though, like, I think you, you made a comment, like, you know, people usually speak about fatherhood from a deficit about what they didn't have, and then they try to pass it on to, you know, um, uh, you know, or was it good, bad, or somewhere in between? The interesting thing about my father is that of the six kids, you know, we all got a different version of him mm-hmm. uh, based on our age, what order you were born. But I never held any resentment which is kind of extraordinary given the shit I had to endure. Mm-hmm. But I think I had the ability, I had this innate ability to see his pain and to see his vulnerability and to understand it from an empathetic place. And so it was never like, I can't believe this did this shit to me. This is a man who came after me with two hammers, bro. Wow. One day, like coming home late from school because I played basketball with some friends. I lied about it and said... He had, you know, I let my friend borrow his, um, my, my train pass so I couldn't come home right away. Mm-hmm. He was like, all right. He was at work when I called him and told him that. And he comes home and we lived in a duplex apartment. He sneaks upstairs in my room. Next thing I know, he's standing over me with an extension cord. And I'm 15 at the time. And at 12, he told me he would, st- he would not beat me anymore. But if here he is with an extension cord, because I came home late from school. Now, as a parent, I get it, the nervousness, the, you know, the, the anxiety you might have not knowing where your kids are. This is a time before cell phones and pages. Mm-hmm. So he had no idea where I was. And so he had his own frustration based on that. But he had, like, it was hours between the time we spoke and he came home. So in his mind, he still held that, okay, this boy lied to me. I'm gonna go tighten him up, as he would say. Um, so he comes to swinging at me with this extension cord and I reached up and grabbed it and I pulled it from him and it shocked him. He's like, all right, you wait right here. He goes downstairs and I see him go down the stairs and I look, he's coming back upstairs. He had a hammer in each hand, bro. Wow. What the hell was he going to do with those hammers? But I dipped out. I had a, 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 a um, terrace off of my bedroom and I jumped out off the terrace onto the, catwalk where our apartment was and kind of left the house for a couple of days. Um, so it's crazy to having go, gone through that shit. And then he kicked me out probably like a month later. He caught me in bed with this girl. Mm. He felt I disrespected the house. So at 16 years old, I got kicked out with uh, $12 in my pocket, my guitar, a BMX spike, and my backpack. This is the same year I got shot. I got shot in January. I got kicked out in October. Mm. So that being said, um, and of the six kids, four of us got kicked out by the age of 17, all because of some sexual related incident. Sisters with their boyfriends. My brother got his girlfriend pregnant. And my father was like, either you're going to marry her or you're going to move. So he definitely 
was a mixed bag mm. of, you know, <laughs> warmth and compassion and practical life skills and fucking terror. Wow. <laughs> but, wow. But, yeah, you know. But, what? <laughs> uh, what's that? No, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, but like I said, man, I, I, I never harbored it. Right. I never was resentful. <laughs> I was never, I just felt like, you know, like there were times when we ate dinner or bre- breakfast. We always ate as a family, and he insisted upon that. Mm-hmm. Six o'clock every day was dinner time. And whenever he would eat, and he always sat at the head of the table, there was something about his vulnerability for me. As I'm talking a little kid, mm-hmm. I'm looking at this man, I just felt for him. Because I knew he missed my mother. I knew he wished it was different. He thought he could you know, control her and, and run the show. And, you know, they got into an argument, um, Valentine's Day of 1977. She called the cops and when the cops came, they actually asked her to leave. And my grandmother lived with us at the time as well. And her and my mother left. Yeah. So. Wow. Um, that was a different time. That yeah. was a different yeah. time. You know, you yeah. and I grew up in the same era um, in New York. Right. So you kind of talk about um, in 1977, I was graduating from, I uh, believe, the ninth grade. Yeah, 1977, I was graduating from the ninth grade. And so um, right. I remember um, similar circumstances. My mother did not want me to go to Wingate High School, and Wingate High School was known around the city. That was the school that I was supposed to go to. And I ended up going to Erasmus, and I got into Erasmus, um, the only way you can get into Erasmus because it was a vocational school. It was a performing arts school. Um, I sung. Yeah, I sung Lift Every Voice and Sing to get into okay. Erasmus. Sung it, and the irony in it, I did not know it was the Black National Anthem. I just liked the song. Right. I sung it and got in. Um, you know, your father, you know, already has a special place in my heart because literally about three weeks ago, I watched Jungle Book. Mm. And so and, and that and I, 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 I played that part of the show over and over and over because I absolutely love that song and the lyrics right. in that song. It's just it's so much meaning um, in that song. You know, I'm reading or listening to, because I don't read a lot, but I listen, I'm an audible person. So I listen to books in the car. And so I'm listening to Will Smith's book right now. And, you know, his first couple, he comes out, his first chapter is solely on his dad. And you guys' experiences with your dads mirror each other. In addition to the way that he talks about him, the way that he admires him, the way that he's impacted him, and the way that he was impacted by him. Like, I'm listening to you, I'm like, man, that's Will, he's Will, him and Will Smith telling the same story, but then oh, I yeah. myself, yeah. a lot of cats in the 70s tell that story. It's yeah. the same story yeah. um, with our fathers. Um, I wanna, you know, growing up in the Bronx, and it made me kind of think about you know, my growing up in Brooklyn, you know, we talk about dads and, you know, ironically in my building, um, there were no dads um, in our buildings. There was one Um, and he belonged to my good friend, Derek Evans, who lived across the hall from me. And in a ironic way, his father's name was James. He was my life, James (laughs) Evans, right? (laughs) And so when I got a chance to meet um, John Amos, uh, we gave him, a, gave him an, an award in Harlem in 2008, I think it was. Um, he spoke at my dinner um, in Harlem. And when I introduced him, I said to him that for many of us growing up in Brooklyn, um, the day that your character died on good times, our, die, our dads died the same day because you were what we saw as the um, 
desired man to be in our life with all of your edges, all of your vulnerabilities, as you would say, and all of your um, intentionality in the sternness of being very focused on your children succeeding, um, not worrying about your relationship with them. When you were growing up in the Bronx and then going to Harlem, what did fatherhood look like for you in those communities? Well, you know, it's funny because um, two, you know, a couple of things. Working on my book, you know, I mentioned Will in the book and I talk about um, the Oscar slap. And but really what I was looking at was his trauma playing out loud. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've heard, I haven't read his book yet, but I've heard from so many people who have the impact of his father. And so the parallels you drew, um, uh, I've heard about, and I think it is important. And there is, you know, um, uh, a lot to unpack there. And then when you mentioned James Evans, John, uh, John Amos and the character, I also referenced that because I started writing this book through the lens of Hollywood black men and trauma. And through the lens of the history of film, the images that we've seen, mm-hmm. how they've impacted us individually, as you talked about, when that character died, you're de- in your mind, and for a lot of people, their dad died. I've also been that dude on television, mm-hmm. raising people based on a television, a fictional character. And it's very powerful to know the impact of these images on film and television and in music and in sports and any in any media the representation of fatherhood is so important and critical because people are watching and when i played jc williams on new york on the cover i was aware of that and so there were things that i did like express affection to my son mm-hmm. my father wasn't necessarily affectionate when he had his hands on me because he put his hands on me to beat my ass Mm-hmm. not to hug me and kiss me like that. Um, so similar to you, um, there weren't a lot of fathers around. There were, I, we definitely grew up with a lot of kids in our neighborhood that had their fathers, um, but it wasn't the majority. Mm-hmm. And my father would point that out. He'd say, look at your friends. Mm-hmm. And so those friends that didn't have their father around, my father was that guy. Mm-hmm. In fact, a, a good friend of mine, uh, he just recently released a book and we were doing an event where I was um, interviewing him for his book. Steve King is his name. Um, and he has a book called I'm Really Glad, Happy to See You. Um, and it's a story about him losing his eyesight and, and gaining it through surgeries and or almost losing it in his faith walk. But in that interview, he was talking a lot about how my father raised him. Mm-hmm. I wasn't aware until he shared that. And it was really, really profound to hear him speak with that kind of regard for my father. And he said, you know, I remember, you know, one of the things my father loved to do was take all of our friends on picnics with us or sometimes family vacations. The front door of our apartment was never locked, which is crazy when I think about it. My right. father did not, and he didn't put curtains in the window. So mm-hmm. people could walk by our house and like look in. Everybody was invited to eat. Like so he was very much that community kind of dude. In fact, there was a family in the building whose father had gotten falsely accused of rape and did an eight-year bid. My father took care of that family when uh the father was away. Wow. Or I'd come home from school like in third grade, fourth grade or something, maybe third grade maybe even second, there are kids in the house. I'm like, who are these kids? Mm-hmm. Well, their mother had a psychotic break and she's at Bellevue Hospital. My father took care of those people. Mm-hmm. So there was definitely this sense of community and taking care of community and extended family that we grew up with. And I think, I know that has a lot to do with the way I move in the world from a community engagement perspective. Mm-hmm. I, I know that the sense of taking care of the whole taking care of family is, is definitely a value that I gotten from him. But similar to how you experienced growing up, there weren't, um, if I had to do percentages, maybe, I don't know, 30, 40%, maybe even as high as 50. Mm-hmm. When I, Cause I think about a lot of my kids I was close to, 
their fathers were around, whether they were black or Latino. Um, but it definitely wasn't the majority. I wouldn't say every single family had the father around. Yeah. And, you know, and the other there was other nuances, you know, with the men that were in our communities. And to your point, you know, it wasn't a dad desert. You know, they did not exist. They just was, you know, they they, they weren't plentiful. Right. And so, right. you know, in our building in Crown Heights, um, we had two pimps that lived in our building. Right. And one of them used to live on the first floor and his windows was, as you described, pointed in the front of the in front of the building and like on late early Sunday mornings, he would like always be in the window. You know, those folks that sit in the window and just watch the community, he would always be in the window. But this guy, he always, you know, regardless of what he was in the world, he was very clear about how we as kids, particularly little boys saw him. And he used to always say to us, this ain't for you, young blood. I remember it like I could hear his voice right now in my head. He used to always say, this ain't for you, young blood. Go to school, listen to your mama. That's what he used to say all, of, all the time because we would see him and he would pull his car up and it would be parked in front of the building. And it was purple and big lights and rabbit around the steering wheel and, and crazy horn and women on, on Friday night and Saturday night. And we'd be like, yo, I want to be like him. That dude got all the women, blah, blah, blah. And he would hear us, but he wouldn't say anything to us when he was in his mix. But when he was off the clock and he would come in the hallways and he would come out front sometimes and sit down, his conversation with us was always stay focused, get your education, mind your mama, um, do right in this world. This ain't for you. And I'm always, you know, intrigued by whether or not that um, still exists, particularly amongst black men. And I want to kind of swerve a little bit because you started going down that aisle with respect to New York undercover. And I'm so freaking glad that that is back on TV, man. I just, I can't stop, start watching it because if I start watching it, I can't turn it off. And it is (laughs) everything, right? Because it was one of our community's most culturally impactful shows to date for a number of different reasons. And I think people look at it to see different things. They were mesmerized by the New York City landscape, right? They were mesmerized by the music. They were mesmerized by the coupling of both the black community and the Latino community. And then they was coupled coupled by you and um, my, his name just jumped out of my head. Michael B. Lorenzo? Yes. By your relationship as friends, right? Your, mm-hmm. your friendship. Um, and then there were your relationships that people wrapped themselves around and your relationship with the mother of your son. And then lastly, your oh, no, not lastly, because there was another thing. The fact that you were cops. That was the other piece of it, right? That people was like trying to get their hands wrapped around. Like, I don't know. I heard someone said, I heard a friend of mine is a retired detective. And he said, um, and he made this statement. He says, sometimes I'm too black to be blue. And sometimes I'm too blue to be black. Mm. Um, And he was talking about being a black police officer. And that would have been a great line in the show. We never said that, but that would have been, uh, that's a great, (laughs) great soundbite. Yeah. And so, but your relationship, your relationships, particularly with um, your son and with his mother was, you know, what I think people did not talk about when the show was actually running. But now oh, yeah, they appreciate. Did. Oh no, absolutely they did. They yeah, me? no, they did. But it was so much other noise around it. No, but you know, again, you're talking to the person who played the character, so right. <laughs> I can I can tell you. Yeah, I can tell you that was huge. In really? fact, really? Um, absolutely. I mean that 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 informed so much of my work in, in fatherhood. Like when I started the Malik Over Fatherhood Project in 1998, when I became a dad. It was because of, in large part, because of the show. Mm-hmm. Yes, I became a dad. Yes, I was going through issues with my ex and you know fighting for custody, and I was looking around for resources, and they weren't. So I started an organization, you know, to address that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but all the programming I was looking to do at the time, you know, TV program, TV specials, film. So I was, I, I, what that show did for me um, was show me the power of storytelling on film mm-hmm. and the ability it had to impact people's lives in a real way. Mm-hmm. So I can't tell you how many kids would come up and go, hey, I love the relationship you have with your son on that show, or how many fathers would say, you know, I ain't grew up with my dad, but you know, I watched you on the show the same way you watch Good Times and James Evan character, people watching JC Williams. Mm-hmm. And because of that, there were a lot of things that I knew to do, um, coupled with what my father did or my brother who became a teenage dad. And I would layer in those values into the character, even if they weren't written, for instance, Mm-hmm. They would write things like JC sits around, or, you know, um, prepares a TV dinner for, for G. I'm like, absolutely not. Props, go get food, and we're going to cook in real time. We're going to cut vegetables and chicken, whatever it was I cooked. Mm-hmm. Why? Because my father insisted we learn how to cook. Or JC, you know, G does his homework while watching TV. Absolutely not. <laughs> you know, and so what was interesting about this is that as writers, we always write from what we know, mm-hmm. right? right? And whether we experience it ourselves or, you know, uh, someone else saw it. So when I think about it, I don't even remember who wrote those, those episodes or those moments, but presumably that might have been their experience. Mm-hmm. The same way as the actor, because of my experiences, I said absolutely not, because I thought it was important that people saw this young father cook preparing an actual meal from scratch with his son that they saw a kid not doing his homework watching tv but in fact i actually had them put like surround his bed because he was sitting on his bed doing the homework i said put books all around him right Mm -hmm. um and that's me doing something that you know isn't necessarily even my my place as Mm -hmm. a fellow actor because mm-hmm. that's really a director's call or a writer's call or a producer's call. But because I'm, I've always been a person that holds the whole vision, mm-hmm. um, I can't help myself. Um, it's just how my brain works. It's very hard for me to sort of isolate into this one little thing. I'm always thinking about, you know, how does what I'm wearing as a key, even as a character, how is that communicating mm-hmm. a certain authenticity, a certain reality, a certain part of the culture? Um, through the clothes, through my walk, through the toothpick in my mouth, through how I'm doing my son. So, um, no, it, it definitely was a huge piece for people. Um, and the irony for me is I wasn't a dad at the time. And so where art imitates life, here you have this guy fighting, you know, with his ex about custody with the kid. And then I became a, I, I you know, we got pregnant my last season in New York on the cover. And then gave birth a few months after we wrapped. Um, and then I had I had the wonderful experience of beginning to have custody <laughs> issues and go to court and learn all about that shit. But life yeah. life imitating life, right? <laughs> <laughs> um as we wind down. Um, I want to um, just touch on this before we close out. You produce a piece um, that was a professional piece for you, but in its completion has now begun to resonate beyond the original intention that you created this piece, Little Boy. Um, and I, can t- I, I have now watched that thing about three or four different times to kind of begin to get it in my own narrative and trying to figure out how to utilize it in my space. But that is a narrative that is often not heard or told from the father's perspective. And that is how single moms are raising their boys. Talk about why you came up with that. Talk about it first, tell people what it is and then what made you produce that particular situation. Um, Little Boy is a short film um, that I wrote and directed and and produced uh, last summer. Um, And what inspired it was, so I I have three children at this point, Um, not at this point because I have no more, but uh, 24, at this point they're 24, 21, and 20. 
So my first and my third actually have the same mom. So it was a, we were together, broke up, you know, another situation went back. Unfortunately, in my own brokenness, as, as, as great as my father might have been in, in a lot of the ways, the, the, the areas that we lacked as a family was the, the nurturing and understanding of, of choosing a partner. Mm. Right. So, um, I chose out of lust. I chose from, oh, she hot, whatever it was, as evolved as I thought I was, right? Uh, and, and, and frankly, ultimately the person that I ended up having children with um, uh, was not the person I actually wanted to be with. So my first daughter um, came to me in a dream. So I meant, you mentioned, you know, you learned about me getting shot. Mm-hmm. When I woke up in the hospital the next day, um, there were six doctors standing around the bed, two at the foot of the bed, two on each side. And they're looking down at me, shaking their head, like, we can't believe this kid survived being shot where I got shot. Mm-hmm. And that I, so lucky I didn't become a quadriplegic or I wasn't dead. So that picture that in your head. So in 1998, I have this dream, same scenario, in the hospital, in the bed, six doctors, except I'm pregnant. And there's a big old belly, and they're shaking their head, and they're like, push. (laughs) And out comes this baby. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what that meant, other than I started talking to the ex, and I said, you know, it had been two years at that point we were seeing each other. And I had that dream, and I would have these waking dreams where I would see her pregnant or with child. Mm-hmm. And I believe it was, you know, you know, from the spirit world, however people look at it, you know, spirit that's supposed to be born and going to knock on the door, even right. in the most inappropriate circumstances, because that, that life force is real, mm-hmm. and it needs to come forth. So there's that. So our relationship has always been tenuous. Um, there's a lot of toxicity and trauma, unresolved stuff on both sides. Um, I believe at this point, and I, and I can say this only because when people are healed, mm-hmm. hurt people hurt people and heal people heal people. Mm-hmm. So if you are healed, your tendency is going to be, how do I help other people? Mm-hmm. How do I always seek resolution? If there's conflict, if there's discord, you're going to find a way to come together to make it better for the whole because when you're healed, you understand you vibrate at a higher frequency, mm-hmm. you attract more positivity, life is better in general, mentally, emotionally, physically, generally, financially, it's all connected. Mm-hmm. If you're not, you're always bumping up against conflict, Why? right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes a healed person still has to deal with an unhealed person when you have children. Mm -hmm. And that is my dynamic. Mm -hmm. And so as my children have gotten older, the seeds that were planted from both of us have taken root. And that strange, we call it strange fruit, but there's certain fruit that ain't so tasty. Why? And you're like, this ain't, that ain't from the Yoba side. (laughs) I began to think about what were the things that were said to my children when I wasn't around mm-hmm. and I wasn't around only because I was working out of the country, out of the state, wherever it wasn't like, but I was always present, mm-hmm. right? Numbers don't change, email don't change, addresses, they've, you know, I've moved whatever, but I'm always available, right? I'd fly in wherever. And if when I'm in town, then it was always about, you know, being present, picking up from school, taking to school, even not being together, you know, weekend trips, holidays, Sunday dinners, doing all the things that you want to do to give the kids this memory of even if we're not together, our parents worked as a unit for our our behalf. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that's not my experience. And so this film was motivated by the thought of what were those conversations that were had when I wasn't around? Because the way that my now older children are behaving it doesn't make sense mm, Okay, that the things that come out of their mouth, the attitude they might have, the way they may, like, where did that come from? Mm-hmm. You're saying things now that sound like your mother, 
Mm. Right? So the film that you watched, 70 to 80% of that mom's dialogue are things that were, I was actually told from my kid's mom or said to me. So it wasn't, it's autobiographical to that extent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the so, you know, in short, the, the film is, is about a little boy. Um, it's called Little Boy. And that little boy, I met him um, on a Tuesday. He introduced himself to me at a restaurant. He happened to be a young actor and told me his story. And it was fucking cute. And the next day I had a conversation with my agent about having more content on my reel for directing. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, you need to write something about 10 minutes long with a beginning, middle, end, and to add to your director reel. And that little kid's face popped in my head. And he's such a bright, beautiful young man. And I thought about what is it that makes that lightened kids dim? Mm. And so I set about writing and it just poured out of me. And then I contacted his mom um, and I said, I wrote something and uh, you know, I'd like to, your son to be in it. God is, you know, works in mysterious ways. And, and so to have that kid in my film whose parents are literally going through the same thing. And I had the parents on set as well. Okay. And during the, the days that we shot, yeah, I definitely would try to be the bridge between them and encourage them to work through their stuff. I still stay in contact with them. I just had dinner with the mom and the son probably three, four weeks ago, uh, checking in on them, making sure that they're moving forward with that, that their, their case. But the film was intended for my reel, um, just to show that I can tell a story, a scripted story. Um, but I've been screening it for fatherhood groups and, you know, shared it with you recently. And so the more I share it, the more people will say, man, you got to let other people see this thing, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that it's definitely a great conversation starter. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's really interesting to see how people respond. Like a friend of mine who's got a very close relationship with her dad, she's a filmmaker as well, you know, in her mind, she was like, I can't believe, you know, you you made the, the mom the villain from the beginning. And <laughs> that's interesting. That's your perspective. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I, my, I endeavor to show the flaws in all the parents, in both parents. And right. it's, I don't think it wasn't about making one a villain or the other. It was simply about here is a particular truth that mm-hmm. I certainly am very familiar with. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times people go, well, what did you have to do something? Yeah. In my brokenness, I made some bootleg choices. Right. Right. In my own unhealed space, I made choices. Mm-hmm. But over the years, it has served to help me heal. Mm-hmm. And I can admit, even then, I knew what I was doing. I knew that this was not the perfect scenario. I did not anticipate the levels of trauma that we've had to work through to this day. Mm-hmm. I got two of my kids aren't even speaking, bro. Mm. Wow. Yeah. And that is why I wrote that film because I, I was really grappling with what the f- happened. How can you be as present as I've been? How can you support and encourage and nurture and do all the things and still get the result where a child, a group, my 24 year old, who's now the age her mother was when I met her mom. And I was like mm-hmm. 27, 28. I think I was 28 when I met her mother. Um, sounds just like her. And in short, if a child grows up and sounds like that other parent, and if you say to them, so talk to me, what exactly is the issue? And they don't actually have the ability to articulate it, but it's just how I feel. Is it, okay, well, let's unpack that. Well, I, you know, you have to respect my, okay, those are your feelings. Mm-hmm. Does it make them facts? Because you feel a certain way. And as long as you heard certain things that encourage you to think a certain way, our thoughts, our thinking impacts how we feel, mm-hmm. period. That is a scientific fact. Those neural pathways in our brain that allow thoughts to run through them will create an emotional response based on how we think. Wow. Listen, bro, thank you so much. I love your truth. I love your heart. 
I mean, that's what, you know, I'm, I admire about you, um, sharing your truth, sharing your heart. And you can't do this work. I always often tell people, you know, this work that I do, that we do, um, it's not hard work, it's heart work. And if your heart ain't in it, don't mess with it because you can do more damage to someone than you can do help if you haven't resolved your own issues. So, and that's true, so, man, for doctors, for therapists. <laughs> for, like, think about that, right? There are these people who have these issues, and then you go into a profession where you're supposed to be helping people. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm dealing with some stuff around that now. And people that's in this space that are working with dads and have not resolved their own issues with their own dads. It's like step, step away from the mic. That's why I always say step away from the mic. And so, yeah, yeah. listen, thank you so much, man. I love you. Yeah, the pieces. Love you too, brother. Um, let's do more, man. Let's, let's figure it out. Let's screen it. Let's, let's set up some screenings and some conversations. Cause you know, you know, I'm, I'm ready to jump back in it, you know, in a more intentional and thoughtful way with this. Be careful what you place. ask for. Cause I'll pull you. No, no, but that's, listen, I'm at a place in my life, brother, where my voice in the world, not mm -hmm. a character, mm -hmm. not me performing somebody else, but the <laughs> thing that I say, right. <laughs> it's important that, that it's, uh, that it's out there. Okay. Well, I got you. I already, I saw, I saw, um, let me close this out. Thank you so much everyone for listening to my good brother, Malik Yoba. Um, this is, I am dad radio. I'm your host, Kenny Braswell, and I'll be back with you next Sunday, same time, same place. Have a great week and God bless you. Thank you so much for taking the time to spend with us. You've been listening to I Am Dad podcast. We hope that you have been informed, encouraged you to think, or even inspired your heart for the love of dads. The conversation does not end here. Come back and join us next week. Same time, same place. Or you can continue the dialogue on our I Am Dad Facebook page. We also invite you to listen to past episodes, learn more about us, and keep up with special activities by visiting IamDadPodcast.com. That's IamDadPodcast.com. Until next time, I leave you with this reminder of manhood from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Because of this reminder, I will always understand that I am dad, period. period.